Turn with me again to John's Gospel. And uh, John's Gospel, and we read 21 to 38. I don't have the words on the screen. If you want to get a Bible, feel completely free. pray before we read John 13. We'll pick up at verse 21. Almighty God, you're always leading us, even when we do not know where we are going, as with Abraham, which we've been looking at recently. Even when we don't feel you are near, I thank you that you are still leading us. Lead us this afternoon as we come to your word. Show us your glory that we would see Jesus, remind us of your love, open our ears to hear your voice, and as we've already prayed, grant us grace to obey all that you command in Jesus' name. Amen. So John 13, 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is to he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because G Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in, in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Last time, we saw in those first 20 verses of John 13, the cleansing of the disciples' feet. Now we have the cleansing of their fellowship. Judas departs, 
leaving Jesus and the 11 remaining disciples. It is almost as if Jesus was waiting for this moment once Judas has gone. And because Jesus now launches into one of the longest sections of private teaching we have anywhere in the Gospel. Beginning at verse 31, going through to the end of chapter 17, the high priestly prayer. This is known as the upper room discourse. And they're in this upper room which Jesus has prepared as they're partaking for the Passover meal. It is Thursday night. It is the day before the Lord's crucifixion. His betrayal and arrest are only just a few hours away in the small hours of the morning. So this is the last time before the cross that Jesus has to prepare his disciples for what is about to happen. The change that will happen on the other side of Good Friday, sorry, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And this discourse is typical of what you might call a Jewish farewell speech. Think of Jacob's speech before he dies in Genesis, or Moses' speech. And it was typical that once someone was known, knew their end was approaching, Jesus here knows his hour has come. It'd be, it would be typical to gather your closest friends and families around you to comfort them, encourage them, exhort them, maybe exhort them to obedience. Sometimes, biblically, you can think of passing on your spirit, as Moses did, or Elijah did to Elisha. And Jesus will talk at length in the Upper Room Discourse about the Holy Spirit. And we'll find a number of recurring themes in this section. Jesus speaks a lot about coming and going and where he's going, they cannot follow. He says a lot about the Holy Spirit, about the Trinity. He speaks about the disciples' relationship with the world. He speaks about unity and joy. He speaks about salvation and the judgment to come. We'll get to that in the weeks to come. Well, this is where Jesus begins in the upper room discourse. Very simply, but very profoundly, glory and love. He wants to talk about two things at the outset of this discourse before his betrayal, glory and love. Glory, first of all. Up in verse 21 begins with Jesus being troubled in his spirit. And prior to this, he's just finished with an allusion to his betrayal. Verse 18, he who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me, referring to the prophecy from the Old Testament. Jesus is troubled in his spirit. There are two other times in John where Jesus reacts this way, using the same language. John 11, 13, about Lazarus, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit. It's the same word for greatly troubled. Lazarus had died. The other time is in John 12, 27, and now is my soul troubled, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Again, he anticipates his hour is coming, and for a third time in John 13 now, he says he is troubled in his spirit. And what holds all of those three incidents in common is death. You've got the death of Lazarus, 
the mourning of his family and friends, and Jesus' own impending death. So death is the last enemy. Jesus knew it. Jesus felt it. He mourned it. He is the Son of God. And in his humanity, he's deeply troubled over death. He makes one thing very clear. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. They don't understand. Verse 22. Now, we have the vantage point. Sometimes we read this. We know this. They didn't have... They, they didn't know the story. We do. But you can understand their confusion. They've been together for three years. We have to understand some of the particulars in this scene to understand what is happening. One of the disciples whom Jesus had loved, who loved. Now we know from the other Gospels that it's only 12, the 12 in the upper room. There was a larger group, 70, 120, who were following Jesus. And some people supported him out of their means, but here is just 12. So the disciple whom Jesus loved must be one of them. It's interesting this term, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, who did Jesus love the most, if you like, or who would Jesus have loved? I actually just put the t TV on at lunchtime, and just happened to, because I was trying to catch the news, my last time hopefully watching BBC, but that's another story, but um, there was news, and somebody was talking about some a pilgrimage to Rome, and you know, someone just said, of course, you know, Rome is founded because Peter, who was Jesus' favourite disciple. And then, you know, they, they just assume that Peter was the one who Jesus loved more than any other. And from then you know, comes obviously a lot of Catholic theology. So if we did not know better, we might think Peter. Peter shows up a lot in the Gospels. But Peter is going to speak in just a moment and motion to this other disciple. So it's not Peter. And we'll find the disciple whom Jesus loved is mentioned at the cross in John 19, the empty tomb in John 20, and at the end of the book where he says he is the one who has written the book. You see him often with Peter. So he's obviously one of the close-knit inner circle, Peter, James, and John, who were on the Mount of Transfiguration and the early church is uniform, and it's clear that this one who's been referred to is John, who is writing the Gospel. Now, you might think that's a bit strange, almost like a boast, but it's actually the opposite. So don't hear it as the one, the one who Jesus loved more than the others, but as a designation of humility, that John is not drawing attention to himself. The people would have known when they had... Who, when they were reading this, who had written it, they would have understand John's place in the church. He doesn't need to mention his name, he doesn't need to draw attention to himself. He only goes by this designation here, I'm simply another person Jesus loves. So it's not a designation of pride, but actually a designation of humility. And then Simon Peter motioned to him to say of whom Jesus was speaking. I know it's, maybe it's fun's the wrong word, but it's helpful to picture what this may, might have been like, because Peter wasn't one for subtleties, but he must have been across the table, or I imagine, you know, he must have been across the way. If you remember, 
they would have been reclining almost like in a circle around the central you know, you know, mini table for food. So he, but he definitely wasn't sitting next to Jesus or next to John. So he must have been probably the other side of, of the circle from, from um, John and Jesus. But he, 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 what he's saying is, he just said something really important, John. He loves you, and you're next to him, to ask him. And you know, so they would have been on those couches. And John leant back, probably leant, literally, he must have leant right back into the, the bosom of Jesus, into the chest of Jesus. And though it doesn't say that it was in a whisper, it's clear this was a private conversation between Jesus and John. Because in verse 28 they say no one at the table knew why he said this to him. So they're not hearing everything that John and Jesus were saying. So it must have been some kind of whisper, a private conversation. But John asks Jesus right up close, Lord, who is it? And Jesus then tells him, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Some translations of the Bible say a sop, because it would have been food dipped into liquid, and he gives it to Judas. John must have been, I would say, stunned. He must have been stunned. The rest wonder what this means. You can read some of the rabbinical literature later, and it talks about sitting on the right and the left as the seats of first and second honour, and we cannot be certain John was clearly on one side because he leans back into Jesus, so he must have been next to Jesus. Many other people suspect that Judas was on the other side of Jesus because he was the treasurer, so he had a place of honour. So the and the fact that Jesus easily handed him the sock suggests that he may well have been at the other place of honour. So, I mean, we don't know for sure, but if you had Jesus, you definitely had John, and maybe Judas the other side. And he hands to Judas this sock, this piece of bread maybe dipped in some liquid, an act of unrequited love. And maybe even we hear sacramental overtones, not the Lord's Supper in itself, but Jesus is saying, I'm willing to offer my body, my blood, I would die for you, Judas. But Judas's heart is hardened, and he's in the grip of Satan. Because after he took the morsel, Satan entered into him. Probably an expression, Satan had taken hold of his heart, and he will not let him go. And Jesus said, what you're about to do, do quickly. Judas was the treasurer. We know that from John 12. You know, how did the disciples live when they were on the road with Jesus? That we know from other places that other people, rich people, supported them. So they obviously had a common money bag. Judas was in charge of it. The disciples know he is the treasurer. So when Jesus says what you're going to do, do quickly, they assume two, one of two things. One is Jesus meant go and get enough for, for the feast. Or secondly, go out and support the poor. But Jesus, Judas doesn't do either. He leaves to betray Jesus. Judas leaves, he takes the bread, 
but he leaves behind the love of Christ. And then we have this ominous tone at the end of verse 30, it was night. An indication of the spiritual moment, the spiritual moment for Judas and Jesus. And although the moon would have been dark at Passover, sorry, the full, the air is dark. So while the moon might well have been high and full, the air is dark. This is a moment of night, of darkness, which then brings us to the upper room discourse and glory. And it's strange you might think that Jesus begins, now Judas has gone, his private sermon with a word about glory. Should not Jesus have said, now is the Son of Man about to be betrayed? Or we shall grieve together what is about to happen? Or now we see the evil that there is in the world? They would have been appropriate and understandable. But that Jesus says, when Judas had left, Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. What looks to be the beginning of defeat, Jesus says, is the beginning of glory. It's a tremendous and it meant to be an exciting word from Jesus. And by Judas, by leaving the room, has put in motion what God had planned from eternity past. The death of the Son of God. So you have this juxtaposition. The mood, the physical atmosphere is dark, but at the darkest point, the dawn is coming. And Jesus understands at the sunrise, and I mean both, S-O-N, capital S, and S-U-N, little s, is not far off. The sun rise. The sun will be glorified as he obeys the Father, as Jesus dies for the sins of the world. The Father is glorified in the obedience of the Son and the satisfaction of divine wrath. You cannot under Christianity, you cannot understand Christianity, you cannot understand the gospel until you understand that this moment of deep darkness, when Judas is setting in motion the most despicable act of evil ever to happen on planet Earth, the crucifixion of God's Son. In the same moment, the beginning of the end of the very devil that has entered into Judas. It's the beginning of the end. Suffering is an opportunity to bring God glory. There is a temptation. We see that. There is temptation. We see that with Christ. You know, in your own life. But suffering is always an opportunity to give God the glory. Conquering the devil brings God glory. The redemption of sinners brings God glory. Maintaining faith in God in suffering brings God glory. Death is a terrible thing. Jesus feels that. Death has always been an enemy. It always will be. Until it is finally, decisively done away with. No doubt Jesus is in anguish of what is to come. He is going to pray. And he's going to pour drops of blood. And he asks, Father, if there would be another way. It's understandable. It's how mankind feels. Which is how Jesus felt as human. He knows what comes next. And this is the privilege that we have 
If you are a Christian, we know what comes next. The grave, but then glory. We don't mourn as those who have no hope. It is appointed for every man to die once, then the judgment, but for those who are in Christ, first the grave, then glory. Hebrews tells us for the joy that was set before him, Jesus despised the shame, the agony of the cross. He set it aside, considering it of worth little to the all-surpassing glory that was to come. So don't miss, before we get to the more familiar parts of these verses, how Jesus begins this discourse. In the midst of the most exquisite suffering to be felt, Jesus says, the first thing I want to tell you disciples is glory. Glory, but then love. Verse 33, little children, yet a little while, while I'm with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. A new commandment. We get to Holy Week. We know Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. We know Good Friday, the crucifixion, Easter Sunday. And there's Monday Thursday. There's Monday Thursday. The Anglicans do a lot more with Monday Thursday than, 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 the, than the Free Church does. But Monday comes from the Latin word mandatum. Mandate. Which means command. So it is Mandate Thursday or Commandment Thursday. So called because of this verse that a new commandment in the Latin, a new mandatum, a new mandate I give to you, which is why it's called Monday Thursday. Now, I didn't know that before last week, so I'm sure all of you did, but then... Um, <laughs> so, it means, Monday means mandate. So, it's Monday Thursday. A new commandment, Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, you shall love the Lord with your, your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Leviticus 19, 18, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Mark 12, 30, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul. The second is, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Romans 13, 10, love does no wrong to a neighbour. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. A new commandment? Is this new? This isn't the first time that God's people have been told to love one another. How is this the new commandment? Well, it's new in three ways, at least three ways. Firstly, because it's going to initiate and inaugurate the new covenant. The old covenant with Moses is superseded with the new covenant in Christ. So a page is turned in redemptive history. God's way of interacting with his people will be with the new covenant superseding the old covenant with Moses. So that is new. But secondly, there will be a new power. So there's a new covenant, a new power. Jesus is going to talk oftentimes about the paraclete, the comforter. So that's the Holy Spirit who will give you power from on high to be my witnesses, a new power to obey. So you have a new covenant 
you have a new power and a new example. It's explicitly mentioned. Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. A new paradigm, a new example. We've heard it before, love your neighbour, but we've never seen love in the flesh like this. Just as I have loved you, love one another. I read it this morning for a reason, but in his letter, 1 John 2, Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment I'm writing to you, which is true in him and you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. An old commandment, but it is new. You've seen it in Jesus. It's now to be seen more profoundly in you. There's never ever been love like the dying love of Jesus. He washed their feet, including the one who would betray him. He stooped, we saw that last time, to wash their feet. The one through whom those feet were created. The one who for eternity, never ending, never beginning, he knew the glories of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, Trinitarian love and communion. The Son of God stooped to wash their feet. You see his love in verse 33. The only time we have Jesus speaking this way, little children, you, you hear the pathos in it, the tenderness, my little ones, my dear friends, my little children. And see the love of Jesus highlighted in the midst of betrayal. We have the act of loyalty from the Son of God. We've seen what happens before the new commandment Jesus leaves, sorry, Judas leaves to betray Jesus. What happens after the new commandment? Jesus predicts Peter will betray him. Now Peter doesn't see it, but what Jesus said will mean everything to Peter. So Peter says, Lord, where are you going? And the answer is, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. It, mean, it must have meant everything to Peter. Jesus knows that there are times coming that Peter will not be proud of. There are things that Peter will do. He's not going to follow Jesus, but he will do afterward. Jesus didn't say that to Judas. There's an ultimate betrayal with Jesus. Sorry, with Judas, with Jesus. But there's a temporary betrayal coming with Peter and Jesus has a word for comfort for Peter afterward. Today can be your afterward. Presently, Peter thinks he's going to lay down his life for Jesus. Verse 37, I will lay down my life for you. The same language Jesus uses in John 10 when he speaks about the good shepherd. Peter gets it wrong. Jesus doesn't need Peter's death, but how much Peter needs Jesus to die for him. Bold and brave Peter will falter at the footsteps of a servant girl three times. Not once, Peter, not twice, but three times. Don Carson says it very well. Sadly, good intentions in a secure room after good food 
are less attractive in a darkened garden with a hostile mob. He says it well, doesn't he? And I guess if Peter couldn't have been committed there, he certainly wouldn't be committed later. Peter thought he was committed, but he found out he was going to crumble. It probably happens a lot of Mondays through Saturdays for a lot of people, that people come to church on a Sunday. But, but Jesus says afterward, it's a wonderful word, we see the love of Jesus sandwiched between an ultimate and approximate act of covenant betrayal, and in the middle is Jesus' act of love and faithfulness. Not like Judas, not like Peter, and Jesus says, love like me. So they hear the commandment with fresh ears, a new commandment, and it's new because Jesus has just demonstrated the ultimate act of love. Not only for the eleven, but for us. We love our enemies. It's in the Bible. We love our family. In a sense, we love everyone in a common grace sort of way. And we want to be friendly. I, I, I'm big on I'm big on that. We want to look out for one another. And in one sense, life is too short to hold on to grudge. We want to be a good Samaritan. There is something unique here about loving one another. I believe in my, with my whole heart the importance of family. I love my family. You love your family. Family is the basic building block of any healthy society. But in a scandalous way, Jesus does relativise the importance of the family at times. Not to say your relations do not matter, but we have an even greater calling. To love family is good, but there is something special about the love for one another. It's not that we don't care about outreach and we come into some kind of holy, superficial huddle. That's not what Jesus meant, because he's going to give the great commission to go. But there's a unique way in which we love our brothers and sisters in Christ in a way we love no one else. I know this from experience, and you would do, you can travel anywhere in the world. You can travel anywhere in the world, on holiday, or in our case, to live. And there is a wonderful oneness and sameness when you're with other Christians. It's instant. They say words differently. They, they eat different food. I can testify to that. Their services may be different. They dress differently. But there is a fellowship. There is an understanding that we're united by Christ. That we have more in common with brothers and sisters in Christ the world over. So there is a unique love for one another. It's true internationally. It's true locally. Let us continue to pray, like the prayer from 1 Psalm 119, that he would show us grace, that we would live this out. They were told to love each other in the Old Testament, but by, by and large, to be God's people was to be an ethnic Jew. Now, some people would have been grafted in from time to time, the proselytes, or, but it was mainly to the ethnic Jew. Well, now it's going to be Jews and Gentiles. No longer is the glue that holds them together, the Jewish race. The love they have for one another 
being brothers to sisters in Christ will be the glue. I thank the Lord that's true of our fellowship, that it's often commented on the love we have that people feel. But it's because of the love of Jesus. It's because of the love for Jesus. And the love for Jesus is manifested. How much we love Jesus is shown in how much we love one another. And what holds together is we know Christ, we know the love of Christ, and we want to love one another with the same love. You'll hear a lot about identity in our day. Some of it is good, some of it is horrible. But this identity must be more important than any affiliation, any nationality. Are we marked fundamentally by love? Is your home marked by love? Our church? Would people be here for six months and had to move away? And then when they left, someone said, what is the church like? Would it be in the first minute? I think it would be. Praise the Lord. It's a loving place. And love is not just sentiment, not watered down, not a universal affirmation of everything you could ever want to do. Love is is active, generosity, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. There should be no unforgiveness in the church. It just shouldn't be. There should be no unforgiveness in the church. No backbiting, no backstabbing. There should be an eagerness to help. There's so much to be thankful for, but God is reminding us again. Tertullian wrote 100 years after, and he quoted a non-Christian observer who said, See how much they love one another. They are ready to die for one another. What is Jesus' example? The example of love found in sacrifice. The humility to wash one another's feet. To sacrifice his own comfort, his own glory, for the good of others. May this be true of us, that people would say, those people, those people who go to the Congregational Church, or those people who go to the Lake Road Chapel, whichever name they use, They have to be Christian because of the way they love one another. May the Lord bless the word for his glory. Amen.